With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Western Civ, episode 174, Magellan. Ferdinand Magellan is another one of those interesting explorers who succeeds a lot based on luck and personal determination. He uses essentially the same techniques and tools as Columbus, who sailed over 25 years earlier and gets around the tip of South America. If you look at the map of the world, what you're going to note immediately is that the passage around South America looks much tighter than the passage around Africa. That's because it is. Many Europeans believed you could get around Africa. The same could not be said of South America. Don't get me wrong. Europeans believed that there was a passage west to Asia. They simply had no idea where it was. Cabot thought it was north. Many people believed it was somewhere in the middle. Heck, Lewis and Clark would be looking for a water route across North America 300 years later. The point I want to make here is this. Europeans knew through Marco Polo and Arab traders that you could get to Asia by going east and Henry the Navigator established early in the 15th century that you could sail around the Moroccan Arabs. But there was no precedent for going west. No Arab merchants ever went that far. The natives encountered by Columbus at all had no inkling of what Europeans were trying to ask them, let alone what to tell them. Certainly, no Tainos had ever been to China All this is to say that Magellan's circumnavigation of the globe was truly remarkable, in spite of the fact that he personally, spoiler alert, failed to make it all the way. Simply passing through the dragon's tail, as Cape Horn was then known, was a monumental feat worthy of our appreciation today. Magellan and his men probably never understood what they were experiencing. Magellan himself had no idea the extent of the Pacific Ocean. 
But amazingly, of all the travails Magellan would face, it was never the storms or even the sea that caused him the most difficulty. It was the traitorous men around him. The sea, the sea is honest. It will tell you it wants to kill you. Men are rarely so blunt. Now, as I said in the last episodes, I plan to cover Magellan in three longer episodes for cohesion. Now, this is part one. But before we begin, a quick word on dating. Most of our information for the voyage comes from two sources. Antonio de Gavetta and Francisco Albo. Their accounts for the passage sometimes differ by a day or two. Albo was a pilot, and so he started the date for each day at noon. Pegafela was not a pilot, and so he started at 12.01 a.m. When they conflict, therefore, I will follow Pegafeta. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In June of 1494... The Pope divided the world in two, drawing a line in the middle of the Atlantic. Spain got everything to the west, Portugal to the east, with the caveat that if either nation found a Christian kingdom, then said kingdom would remain independent. This papal bull was supposed to be the end of the issue. Instead, it set off an early modern arms race of ships and navigators, as both nations sought to dominate the world. So it was then that in the tiny town of Tordesillas, the two sides set to hash out a new line at Portugal's request. To the pleasure of the Portuguese, the Spanish agreed to move the line 270 leagues, around 80 miles, to the west. Now the line sat 370 leagues, around 110 miles, west of the Cape Verde Islands. This crucial change gave the Portuguese access to Africa, which was what they wanted at the time, and Brazil, which they did not know about, but which would prove to be a more important concession down the road. The Treaty of Tordesillas still left much to be desired. Map makers could not determine longitude yet. Plus, no one said whether or not the line went all the way around the globe or just bisected 
the Western Hemisphere. Now, in the end, the treaty was destined to collapse under the weight of its faulty assumptions. As the historian Lawrence Burgreen wrote, quote, The Treaty of Tordesillas was not even a line drawn in the sand. It was written in water. End quote. A generation after Columbus, Charles I of Spain resumed the quest to establish a global Spanish empire. The goal remained the same as it was in 1492. Get to the Indies and the precious spices. Like oil in the 20th century, spices in the 16th drove the world's economy. For centuries, this economy was driven by the Arab monopoly over the spices themselves. Arab traders went to great lengths to conceal the actual source of the spices from Europeans, telling them that the spices came from Africa when they actually came from India and the Spice Islands. And this is not to mention all of the myths and the monsters that the Arabs invented to deter Europeans from trying to find their own way. As a result of these efforts, Arab merchants could charge whatever they wanted. Despite the overwhelming importance of these spices to their economy, throughout the Middle Ages, Europeans were powerless to break the monopoly. Even Spain was far too dry, far too cold, especially during the Little Ice Age, to grow pepper and cloves. So instead, they were shipped from ports in the east overland through the Caliphate to the Near East or Egypt, and thence to Italy or the south of France. Of course, the upshot of all this was that the route gave the Italians a tremendous incentive to keep the Arabs in the game. Indeed, Italy was one of the biggest losers in the age of exploration. Now, according to the evidence, Ferdinand Mahales, or Ferdinand Magellan as you know him, was born around 1480 in northwest Portugal. His father, Rodrigo, was a member of the lesser nobility. So at the age of 12, Magellan and his brother Diogo moved to Lisbon to act as pages in the royal court. As a result, Magellan was privy to all the new and exciting information coming into court as to the discovery of the New World and the rounding of the Cape of Good Hope. Clearly, the world was changing, and Magellan wanted to be a part of that change. In 1495, it seemed that Magellan was destined to follow in the footsteps of Columbus. But then the old King Zhao died, and Manuel I, who distrusted Magellan, came to the throne. Finally, in 1505, both Magellan and his brother Diogo received commissions to manage an eight-ship fleet bound for India in the wake of da Gama's discoveries. They spent the next eight years sailing up and down the coast, trying to enforce Portuguese hegemony over the region. After returning to Lisbon, Magellan threw himself into the struggle over North Africa. You'll recall from the episodes on da Gama that Manuel I 
wanted to use the funds generated from the spice trade to launch a crusade across North Africa. You'll also recall, it was a foolish dream that ended in disaster. The efforts in North Africa only served to tarnish Magellan's reputation, as he and every other Portuguese captain, for that matter, proved unable to do the impossible. Thus it was that Magellan entered middle age with a bad leg and an unfairly ruined reputation, both as a result from the North African campaigns. Short and dark, he looked nothing like the fabled aristocrat that he thought himself to be. Magellan went on to make a case for a voyage around South America directly to King Manuel. But Manuel was in a poor state of mind to grant any request. By that time, he had recently lost his favorite wife. His son was proving ungrateful and unwilling to take over the throne. Three times Magellan asked to lead a voyage of discovery. Three times the king refused. So finally, in the spring of 1517, when Magellan would have been 37 years old, he asked for permission to offer his services elsewhere. Because navigational secrets were so guarded in the 16th century, I find it surprising that Manuel agreed. Manuel said that Magellan was free to do as he pleased. And then, as Magellan knelt to kiss the feet of his sovereign, as was the custom, Manuel stood up, turned his back on the man, and walked away. With new direction in his life, by October 1517, Magellan was in Seville, Spain, where he signed documents formally making himself a subject of Castile and King Charles I. Ironically, this change in allegiance might be why we have such good records of Magellan's ultimate voyage. Generally speaking, the Portuguese were about as secretive as the Arabs had been about any explorations and findings that they made. They destroyed every record they could and threatened anyone with death if they gave away secrets. The Spanish took a different approach. The Spanish kept meticulous records about everything. Law, discoveries, finances, anything that went on during a voyage, they wrote it down. So we're lucky indeed that Magellan sailed for Spain and not for Portugal. Now that being said, Magellan remained an outsider in Spain. He hardly spoke Spanish. He had no connections. Plus, there was the thorny issue of that Treaty of Tordesillas. No one at court could understand how Magellan's proposed voyage around South America could but not end up in Portuguese waters. Though in response, Magellan consistently pointed to a clause in the treaty that allowed either country to cross the other's waters to get to their own. Now, in other words, Magellan's voyage was far from a given, even though he had access to secret Portuguese information. The key break for Magellan in Spain initially came not at court at all, but in the marriage bed. Shortly after arriving, 
Magellan befriended Diogo Barbosa, another Portuguese expat living in Seville. Within a year, Magellan was married to Diogo's daughter, Beatrice. This gave Magellan both an important contact within Spain and a dowry of 600,000 maravedis. Suddenly, he was far from a nobody. From there, he traveled to Valladolid for a meeting with Charles and his advisors. Quote, Magellan had a well-painted globe in which the entire world was depicted, wrote Bartolomé de Casas, and on it he indicated the route that he proposed to take, end quote. Of course, it was an inaccurate globe, based as it was on Ptolemy's false understanding of the world. But with this bad information in tow, Magellan confidently told Charles it would take him two years to find a passage around South America, get to the Spice Islands, and return to Spain. Many at court remained skeptical. According to one historian at court, quote, I asked him, that's Magellan, what way he planned to take, and he answered that he intended to go by Cape St. Mary, which we call the Rio de la Plata, and from thence to follow the coast until he hit the strait. But many remained skeptical. Las Casas then writes, quote, But suppose you do not find any strait by which you can go into the other sea. End quote. In spite of all this skepticism, which was fair, what Magellan had going for him was economies of scale. His ideas were huge. The upside for Spain was enormous. But would it be enough to get Charles and his advisors to back the idea? Immediately after the meetings at Valladolid, Magellan sent back a list of demands, respectful demands, but demands nonetheless, that he said he needed to be satisfied before he would leave. Now, granted, nobody said he could go yet, but meh, be confident, I guess. He wanted an exclusive 10-year franchise on the Spice Islands, which was absurd. But basically, the idea was that Magellan did not want Charles sending a second expedition as soon as his own ships left the port. Now, of course, he wanted 5% on all rents and proceeds from whatever lands he discovered. And so that it was on March the 22nd, 1518, that King Charles offered Ferdinand Magellan a contract regarding the then discovery of the Spice Islands. Quote, Inasmuch as you, Bachelor Rui Fernando and Fernando Magellan, gentlemen born in the kingdom of Portugal, wishing to render to us, us being Charles, a distinguished service, oblige yourselves to find in the domains that belong to us and are ours in the area of the ocean sea, within which the limits of our demarcation, islands, mainlands, rich in spices, we order that the following contract with you be recorded. End quote. In this contract, even seemed to agree with the 10-year clause that Magellan wanted. Quote, Since it would be unjust that others should cross your path, and since you take the labors of this undertaking upon yourselves, it is therefore my wish and will, and I promise that, 
during the next 10 years, I will give no one permission to go on discoveries as long the same regions as yourself. End quote. He did not, as you could probably guess, keep that promise. Only six years after Magellan left, he authorized another voyage. But King Charles, and you could probably read into this and what else I just said from our directly quoted evidence, but he also wanted to make sure that everybody thought at least he was observing the Treaty of Tordesillas. So he made specific requirements in the contract for Magellan to do so. Quote, you must so conduct this voyage of discovery that you do not encroach upon the demarcation and boundaries of the most serene king of Portugal, my very dear uncle and brother, or otherwise prejudice his interests, except within the limits of our demarcation, end quote. Now, in spite of all this language, Charles, to be honest with you, he intended the exact opposite. He had every intention of subverting Manuel. Whether or not the Spice Islands lay within Portuguese waters, Charles intended to keep them if he could. All he needed was a plausible excuse, and then the much more powerful Spanish Empire would surely get the Pope to agree with him. King Charles promised Magellan five ships, quote, two each of 130 tons, two each of 90 tons, and one of 60 tons, equipped with crew, food, and artillery, to wit that said ships are to go supplied for two years and the other people necessary, end quote. Now, with the exception of the ship, the Santiago, which was designated as a caravel, the rest were simply called naus, or ships. Each ship was painted pitch black, giving his fleet the nickname the Black Fleet. Each ship had three masts, one carrying a lateen sail. Each had a daunting stern castle, which could be used to fend off attack by natives or attacking Portuguese. Although Charles agreed to pay for the enterprise, he, as he always was, and we'll learn about this a bit more when we start to talk about the Reformation and other issues, was always deeply in debt. And so Charles turned to the House of Fugger, an international banking interest founded in Augsburg, Germany, who fronted him the cash. The official accounting for the expedition is listed at 8,751,125 maravides. That's around $2.5 million in today's currency. Of this, Charles paid around 6.5 maravides, and then he borrowed the rest. The powers that Charles granted to Magellan were sweeping, by the way. Quote, We order the master and boatswains, pilots and seamen, shipboys and pages, and any other persons and officials there may be in the said fleet, whenever persons who are and reside in said islands and islands to be discovered, that they shall regard, accept, and consider you, Magellan, as our captains of the said fleet. As such, they shall obey you and comply with your orders under the penalty or penalties which, in our name, 
you shall impose, end quote. In other words, Magellan and the other captain, Valerio, were to have absolute authority, quote, We authorize you to execute sentence on their persons and goods, if during the voyage of said fleet there should arise any disputes and conflicts, at sea as well as ashore. You shall deliver, determine, and render justice with respect to them, summarily and without hesitation, nor question of law, end quote. Oh, how quickly that point was going to get tested. When word of the expedition reached the Portuguese king, he was distraught. He could not believe why Magellan had betrayed them. What could have driven him to such a point? I'm not saying any of this sarcastically, by the way. He really had no clue. Guess he wasn't the self-evaluating type. Otherwise, he'd quickly recognize that Magellan sailed for Spain because Portugal said no three times. King Manuel's advisors were also at a loss to explain the behavior and so turned to some unique theories. Quote, Since the devil always maneuvers so that the souls of men entertain evil deeds, in whose undertaking he shall perish, he prepared this occasion for this Ferdinand Magellan to become estranged from his king and his kingdom, and to go astray, end quote. So... Yeah, when in doubt, blame evil spirits. King Manuel set out to do whatever he could to ruin Magellan's reputation, but the damage was done. Before Magellan left Spain, Manuel sent a messenger to tell him that all had been forgiven and imploring him to just come back. Magellan responded that he had already renounced his allegiance to Portugal and would not return. The only loyalty he owed anyone was to Spain now. He certainly was right, by the way, not to go back. Best case scenario, King Manuel would have thrown him in prison. More likely, he would have been tortured and killed. Still fuming, King Manuel tried to convince Charles I that Magellan's proposed voyage was illegal. Charles checked with his advisors, who confirmed their opinion that the Spice Islands lay in the Spanish Hemisphere. Information at hand, Charles refused Manuel's demand. Interestingly, all this wrangling did not prevent Manuel from marrying Charles's sister in July 1518, just as Charles gave the final go-ahead to Magellan's expedition. Magellan intended to depart from the city of Seville. It was really the only option, as the sole Spanish city capable of outfitting an expedition like this. And that's where the problems began. By October... Magellan was writing to Charles, informing him that the workers and sailors were not giving him enough deference as the preparations went forward. Magellan involved himself to a much larger degree than other captains when it came to the outfitting of the fleet. This, combined with his relatively poor Spanish, 
brought him into direct conflict with the men he was supervising. Several dock managers in Seville at one point boarded Magellan's ship, seized him temporarily, and even stabbed one of his pilots. Angry, obviously, Magellan wrote to Charles, Quote, because I believe that your majesty does not approve of maltreating men who leave their kingdom and their own kind to come and serve your majesty, I ask you most humbly to decide what best to do for your service. Whatever your majesty's orders would give me the utmost satisfaction, because I consider the affront done to me not an affront done to one Ferdinand Magellan, but done to a captain of your majesty. End quote. He needed Charles to weigh in and weigh in on these disagreements firmly and in his favor. If it wasn't clear to everyone right now that Magellan was in charge, he would have no chance of maintaining order once at sea. Charles obliged. He ordered that every person who took part in the incident be arrested. Moreover, his letter left no room for question. Magellan was in charge. But things were not that clear-cut. In April 1519, as the final preparations were underway, King Charles issued a bizarre order that would cause a lot of problems on the voyage. He named Juan de Cartagena Inspector General of the Fleet. Cartagena was also to be the chief financial officer of the voyage. Quote, You must see to it that a book is kept, in which you will make entry of all that is loaded in the holds. These things must be marked with your mark, each different class of merchandise being by itself. And you must designate particularly what belongs to each person, because as you will see later, all profits must be allotted at so much to the pound, in order that there be, be no fraud. Basically, Cartagena had to sign off on any financial transaction. This put Magellan at his mercy. Now making matters even worse, Cartagena was appointed royal representative, the king's eyes and ears on the voyage. Charles further wrote, You will advise us fully and specifically of the manner in which our instructions and mandates are complied with in said lands, of our justices, of the treatment and natives of such lands, and how said captains and officers observe our instructions and other matters of our service, end quote. This was all such a problematic and bizarre decision. King Charles had effectively undermined the man who was supposed to lead his exposition. Now, once at sea, it would be easy for lower-ranking commanders on board to argue that it was Cartagena, not Magellan, who was really in charge. Plus, only Magellan and a handful of other officers were Portuguese. Everyone else, including Cartagena, was Spanish. Hence, King Charles sowed the seeds for mutiny and did so in such a way that it almost looked like he wanted Cartagena to be in command. I have no idea why Charles did this. Unified command is essential to success at sea. This voyage was going to last years. You could not have men picking and choosing who they wanted to listen to. You had to have an order and a chain of command. Now, thanks to Charles, they weren't going to have that at all. On May the 8th, 1519, Charles issued his final and incredibly detailed instructions to the fleet. 
Magellan was to record every landfall. He had to treat indigenous people kindly, though he could kill Arabs, or he could seize them and sell them as slaves if he wanted. He was to seek out the Spice Islands and nothing else, and secure a favorable trade treaty upon arrival. Charles went on. He said that Magellan needed to enforce an order that the men of the ship were to have no illicit contact with any local women during the voyage, an order that would prove impossible to enforce. He even spelled out what should happen should the ships become separated. Quote, They should wait a month at the place agreed before and leave a sign which will consist of five rocks put on the ground forming a cross on both sides of the river and another cross of sticks. You will also leave something written in a receptacle buried in the ground indicating the time and the date the ship came by, end quote. Once more spoiling the pot, Charles was sure to send a separate copy of these orders to Cartagena, an indication for those who wanted to doubt Magellan that Charles was already doubting him. Now, just before the expedition set sail, King Charles determined that the second commander, Filario, would not be going. Valario was in ill health and appeared to be suffering from what today we would call a mental collapse. Magellan was probably happy to be rid of him. He was replaced by Andres de San Martin, a Spanish explorer of capable merit. Now, those scheming against Magellan at court used the loss of Valario as a way to further strengthen Cartagena's position as the man in charge of the voyage. Though Charles expressly never gave an order, Magellan was now required to consult Cartagena on all decisions, though there was no indication that such consulting power gave Cartagena any veto authority. As all this scheming continued, Magellan had to worry about the nuts and bolts, the complex procedure of provisioning a fleet for an expedition of this magnitude. Around 1.25 million maravillis around the cost of the entire ship fleet, was set aside for food. And that was only for the first leg or two of the journey. Everyone knew that the ships would need to supply themselves again as they went on. Interestingly, of all the food that Magellan took with him, over two-thirds was either hardtack or wine. Hardtack consists of coarse flour, including the husk, kneaded with hot, very hot water, baked twice, it becomes a literal brick and generally was stored for one month before it was even sold. However, in the hot and humid conditions on board a ship, even hardtack deteriorates. Sailors were often forced to throw soft and hardtack into water, where it became a kind of disgusting porridge. Our records are full of accounts of men refusing to eat this stuff. All in all, because Magellan could not transport all but the hardiest of foods, their diets would be poor, high in salt, and fat. As we'll see, one of Magellan's first goals upon arriving in any port was to try and resupply his ships with fresh food. Disputes over the crew's composition and pay plagued Magellan as he tried to get out of port. The Spanish pilots demanded the same pay as the Portuguese, even though they were much less experienced. King Charles ultimately refused 
telling these men that they'd already been given an advance of one year's pay, plus free lodgings in Seville, which he said was plenty. Now, that being said, well, Charles might be a reasonable man. Those at his court were not. One day before departure, August 9th, 1519, Magellan was summoned before a royal tribunal to testify and explain that he had made every effort to hire Spaniards over foreigners, i.e. Portuguese. Now, one aspect of Magellan's leaving that I don't want to overlook is the personal component, the impact on the people who were going to be left behind. Don't forget that Magellan was a person. He's not just a name in one of our history books. He had a family. His leaving meant that his wife, Beatrice, pregnant with their second child, was on her own. Of course, make no mistake, her father would still protect her. Should Magellan do anything to rouse the ire of King Charles, Beatrice would be the first person royal agents would go after. Before leaving Seville, Magellan was sure to execute a new will. Therein, he left the usual bequests to various churches in Seville, uncertain, of course, that he would return. He specified that Beatrice's entire dowry, 600,000 maravedis, should be returned to her. But again, should Charles turn against Magellan in his absence? None of these elaborate plans would do anything to protect his wife and children. So it was finally on August the 10th, 1519, that Magellan set sail. The five ships first navigated the Guadalavir River that leads from Seville down to the Atlantic, and that wasn't easy, by the way. The last 40 miles of the river are treacherous, filled with sandbars and tidal marshes. Sailors had to be skilled to get a ship from Seville to the mouth of the river. After a week, the fleet reached the town of San Lucar de Barmieda, the final departure point before the ocean. Many ships in recent years had left this town bound for the New World and even undiscovered lands, but none had ever tried to circumnavigate the world. Technically, it was there that Magellan formally took command of the fleet, first making sure that all the sailors visited land for a final religious observance. Quote, A few days after, the Captain General, Magellan, went along the said river in his boat and the masters of other ships with him. And we remained for some days at the port to hear mass on land at a church named Our Lady of Barmieda near San Lucar, where the Captain General ordered all those of the fleet to confess themselves before going further, in which he showed the way to others. Moreover, he would not allow any woman, whosoever she might be, to come on to the fleet and to the ships, for many good reasons, end quote. This all made sense. After all, every sailor wanted God on their side. Now, interestingly, while everyone knew that the fleet was bound for the Spice Islands, the precise intention of the voyage, that is to round the southern tip of South America, was deliberately kept secret from the crew. Quote, He, Magellan, did not wholly declare that the voyage he wished to make lest the people from astonishment and fear refuse to accompany him on so long a voyage as he had in mind to undertake, in view of the great and violent storms of the ocean sea, 
whither he would go, end quote. The reason for the secrecy, recorded Picafeta, was simple. Magellan absolutely positively did not trust his crew. Quote, the masters and captains of other ships of his company loved him, Magellan, not. I do not know the reason, unless it be that he, the captain general, was Portuguese, and they were Spaniards or Castilians, which peoples have long borne ill will and malevolence toward one another, end quote. So to control the mission, Magellan gave ships very strict sailing orders. Quote, first, the said captain general desired that his ships could go before the other ships, and that the others should follow him. And to this end, he carried by night on the poop of his ship a torch or burning faggot of wood, which they called a feral, that the ship should not lose him from sight. Sometimes he put on a lantern, at other times a thick cord of lighted rushes called a trench, which was made of rushes soaked in water and beaten, then dried on the sun or by smoke, end quote. This is another indication that Magellan did not trust Cartagena or the other Spaniards. To maintain his hold, Magellan gave express directions that if his flagship, the Trinidad, signaled, the other ships were to sound a reply immediately, so he could tell if his fleet was following him. Moreover, every ship was required to report to the Trinidad every single day at dusk. These were strict demands and his crew was inexperienced, which meant that maintaining them would be hard. But Magellan already knew the sea was probably going to be the least of his concerns on the voyage. The true danger lurked on the decks of the other four ships. Leaving the mouth of the Guadalavir River on September the 20th, 1519, the fleet pushed out into the Atlantic. At this point in the Age of Discovery, only about half the world was understood by Europeans. The balance remained the land of mystery, superstition, unmapped and haunted by dragons and other mythical creatures. Or so many believed. It's actually striking just how ignorant most Europeans were in 1519 of the world they lived in. They knew of three major land masses, Europe, Asia, and Africa. Most still assumed the Americas were narrow, perhaps a string of islands and places. They also believed there was a third undiscovered land mass called Terra Australis, the Southland which had to be huge because, as Europeans reckoned, the world had to be balanced, and so this landmass had to counterbalance Europe and Asia in the Northern Hemisphere. Europeans were still ruled by religion and religious superstition. Maps at the time were called the T and O maps because three landmasses, Europe, Asia, and Africa, made a giant T surrounded by water, the aforementioned O, of course. Moreover, for religious reasons, Jerusalem always had to be centered on the map, with the Garden of Eden somewhere in Asia. Of course, somewhere in the south lived the infamous priester John, but I've talked about him enough recently, I think we can skip past him this time. 
What Europeans really wanted was access to the Spice Islands, which was the purpose of Magellan's voyage. But what they thought of how those spices were produced was utterly fanciful. One European wrote, quote, You must know that pepper grows in the manner of wild vines beside the trees of the forest so that it can rely on them for support. Its fruit hangs in great clusters like bunches of grapes. They hang so thick that unless they were supported by other trees, the vines would not carry their fruit. When the fruit is ripe, it is all green like the berries of ivy. They gather the fruit and dry it in the sun, then lay it on the drying floor until it is black and wrinkled. End quote. That same writer believed, by the way, that circumnavigating the globe was possible, but perilous, writing, quote, There are so many routes and countries where a man can go wrong, except by the special grace of God, end quote. I want to stress that what was unique about Magellan and Cabot and Columbus and the Gama, for that matter, was how they sought to explore the world. In the Middle Ages, one would have studied the ideas of the ancients and the Bible and tried to make some reasonable guesses. In other words, you never even considered the idea that you might test a hypothesis. Now, in the modern world, or at least the dawn thereof, the goal was now to see for yourself, to explore and confirm or deny the veracity of one's opinions. These were all shockingly new ideas in the 16th century. Though today we accept the scientific method as gospel. From Europe, the trade winds drove Magellan's black fleet to the Canary Islands. His primary goal at the Canaries was to resupply his ships for the rest of the trip across the Atlantic and ideally around South America. I keep saying around, by the way, but I suppose I should point out that Magellan wasn't think, really thinking about going around anything. He expected to go through South America. Like most people at the time, he thought there was a water passage through South America, not necessarily around it. On the Canaries, Magellan was oddly flippant for once about said supplies. He distrusted the merchants, which was a grave mistake and would later almost cost him his life. Said merchants greatly exaggerated the goods they were loading onto the ships. Now, exaggerating goods was common practice, but in this instance, the numbers were so badly inflated and the journey so far that Magellan's error would later almost bring the expedition to a very early end. But there was another factor beyond mere mistake that led to the poor provisioning of the fleet. While on the Canaries, Magellan was told that King Manuel of Portugal had sent not one but two Portuguese fleets to chase him down. Realizing that if caught, his ships would be confiscated and he would almost certainly be tortured and killed, Magellan decided to leave immediately. Had he stayed longer, 
he might have realized he had been swindled, or at the very least provisioned the fleet a bit more. But fearing for his welfare and that of the fleet, he weighed anchor on October the 3rd and left the islands. Of the event, Picafeta wrote, Quote, We sailed on the course to the south, engulfing ourselves in the ocean sea. We passed Cape Verde and sailed for many days along the coast of Guinea or Ethiopia, where there is a mountain called Sierra Leone, which is in eight degrees of latitude. End quote. Taking evasive action, Magellan ordered the fleet to sail day and night and turned south, hugging the African coast rather than going west, as was probably expected. The idea was to throw the Portuguese off his trail, but the crew did not understand the reasons for the odd route. Why? Why? demanded Cartagena. Were they going south, not west? Just follow me, Magellan responded, refusing to negotiate his course. Cartagena protested again, saying Magellan was following a suicidal course and needed to consult the pilots. Nope, said Magellan. You follow, and that's all you need to do right now. For a moment, Magellan expected a mutiny to break out at any moment on the ships. But for now, the fleet sailed on, confused but loyal. For 15 days, Magellan caught favorable winds and went south, but then the weather turned. Changeable winds drove the ships to and fro. Magellan, nor anyone else, had any idea where they were going now. Cooking fires were extinguished. Men worked endlessly without sleep. And one misstep could send a man overboard to his death. It was a tense atmosphere, to say the least. Throughout it all, sharks plagued the ships, terrifying the crew, quote, They have terrible teeth and eat men when they find them alive or dead in the sea. And the said fish are caught with a hook of iron, with which some were taken by our people. They're not good to eat when large, and even the small ones not that good, end quote. Sixty days in, Magellan had to reduce rations. Water and wine consumption was cut in half. He reduced the hardtack to a pound and a half a day, making matters worse. Once the storms abated, the ships drifted into the equatorial calms. There, the five ships just simply sat, listlessly, giving the rebellious Spanish captains time to plot against Magellan once more. In this atmosphere, Cartagena decided to try his luck at unseating Magellan. One night, during the required meeting with the Trinidad, Cartagena decided to ignore tradition and sent a quartermaster to salute Magellan rather than doing it himself. Magellan reminded Cartagena of his orders. Cartagena said he didn't care. If Magellan didn't like the salute from a quartermaster, that was fine. Cartagena would just send a lowly page next time. And things only got worse from there. Shortly thereafter, the master of the Victoria, another of the five ships, was caught in flagrante, 
sodomizing a cabin boy. Homosexuality was a reality of life at sea. Most captains looked the other way, but the fact that they had been caught red-handed, plus Magellan's perceived need to crack down, forced him to seek out a harsher solution. He convened a court-martial and the master was sentenced to die by strangulation, said sentence, to be carried out on December the 20th, 1519. Now after the hearing, Magellan held a tense meeting with his four other captains. Quickly, it was obvious that three of the four were intent on mutiny. Only Serrano of the ship the Santiago remained loyal. Cartagena now openly attacked Magellan and maintained that King Charles had made them co-admirals of the fleet. As a result, Cartagena openly slammed his fist on the ground and declared he would no longer take orders from Magellan. Magellan, though, he saw this all coming. Outside the cabin waited the master-at-arms and two Magellan loyalists. Magellan shouted the signal, and the three men burst into the room, swords drawn. Magellan quickly forced Cartagena down into a chair, declaring him a traitor and a prisoner. At this, Cartagena shouted the co-conspirator's signal, calling on the other three captains to stab Magellan. But they lost their nerve. With Cartagena detained, the other three captains intervened. They now told Magellan he had nothing to fear from them. They asked that Cartagena be freed. And Magellan agreed on the condition that he be confined to the ship the Victoria and relieved from command. The other three captains agreed, and Cartagena was stripped of his captain position. Magellan sounded the horns and announced to the fleet that henceforth the San Antonio would be captained by Antonio de Coco. Resentful, Cartagena learned nothing from his failed mutiny and stewed on the decks of the San Antonio. With the mutiny temporarily dealt with, Magellan turned his attentions to the crossing of the Atlantic. For three weeks in October and November, he headed south, waiting for favorable winds. Then he ordered the ships to set a southwesterly course for Rio de Janeiro. None of the pilots understood the south equatorial current, which carried the fleet well west of the intended target. On November the 29th, 1519, they reached Cape San Augustine in Brazil. Then they headed south, reaching Rio on December the 13th. Finally, Magellan was in the New World. Now, for ten years, the newly discovered land had gone by various names. But finally, in 1511, Brazil appeared on the maps for the first time. Although this was his first visit to Brazil, Magellan was well aware of what to expect. Like all explorers, he was literate and had read the accounts of Amerigo Vespucci. In 1502, Vespucci visited Brazil and wrote, quote, This land is very delightful and covered with an infinite number of green trees and very big ones which never lose their foliage and through the year yield the sweetest aromatic perfumes 
and produce an infinite variety of fruit, gratifying to taste and helpful to the body. And the fields produce herbs and flowers and many sweet and good roots, which are so marvelous that I fancied myself to be near terrestrial paradise, end quote. His descriptions of a new Eden proved apt. As Magellan's ships approached the river, a group of naked women swam out to meet them. Overall, Rio de Janeiro offered the crew a desperately needed respite from the trials of the past two months. Sadly, it was all spoiled by Antonio Salomon's execution for homosexuality. On the appointed date, December the 20th, 1519, Magellan summoned all the crew of the Trinidad to witness the event. One sailor, masked in black to hide his identity, solemnly walked up behind Salomon and, for a, quote, crime against nature, end quote, strangled the man dead. If anything, the event only served to remind the men what a cruel taskmaster Magellan was, and to heighten resentment against him. And doubling down on resentment, before sailing, Magellan again replaced the captain of the San Antonio. He summoned both Cartagena and Antonio de Coco, and informed him now that Alvaro de Mesquita would be replacing them both as captain. I understand the decision. I do. Magellan had a lot of good pilots, but the problem was they were all Portuguese, and under the terms of his contract with King Charles, they couldn't serve as captains. But the problem about Mesquita was not that he was Portuguese, but that he had one huge drawback. He was actually Magellan's cousin-in-law. The cry of nepotism outweighed the benefits of an experienced captain, and thus were sowed the nether seeds of rebellion. The fleet departed Rio de Janeiro on December the 27th, 1519, and reached Paraguana Bay off the coast of Brazil on December the 31st. On January the 10th, 1520, the fleet approached a promising region. Their, their maps were now all blank, the cartographers feverishly filling them in, and the crew was sailing in uncharted waters. But they seemed to be in good waters and likely candidates for a passage. Magellan now saw mostly islands. Perhaps the land would open up after all. Moreover, it was summer in the southern hemisphere, and Magellan was keen to continue the expedition with the winds in their favor. His hope for a swift completion of the expedition, however, would be just as swiftly dashed. I mean, years before Magellan arrived, the Portuguese had searched for the strait at this exact same spot, and they found nothing. In 1506, King Ferdinand and Isabella commissioned a Spanish effort to find the strait there on the southern coast of Brazil. The joint expedition of Juan de Solis and Vicente Pizon tried, but they too came up empty. Upon their return, Solis was dutifully imprisoned. As it turned out, he had gone to sea to escape punishment for murdering his wife. Unable to find the strait, 
The Spanish monarchs had no further need of the man and turned Solis over to face the proverbial music, though he didn't, at least at that moment. In 1514, reports came in that Nunez de Balboa had glimpsed the Pacific Ocean after traversing the Atlantic and, to be fair, walking over Panama. So it was that King Ferdinand released Solis from prison, convinced that the man might find the strait there in Panama. So in 1515, Solis sailed up and down the Panamanian coast. He spotted what seemed like a friendly native tribe, and so he went ashore to greet them with a party of seven. An eyewitness reported what happened next. Quote, Suddenly a great multitude of the inhabitants burst forth upon them and slew them every man with clubs. Even in the sight of their fellows, no one escaping. Their fury not thus satisfied, they cut the slain men in pieces, even upon the shore where their fellows might behold this horrible spectacle from the sea. But they being stricken with fear through this example, durst not come forth of their ships or devise how to revenge the death of their captain and companions. They departed, therefore, from these unfortunate coasts and returned home again with loss and heavy cheer. End quote. Magellan, for his part, continued to the south, to the Rio de la Plata, hoping it was deep enough to be the strait. The Rio de la Plata, however, is both far too shallow to be a strait and is disappointingly just outside Rio de Janeiro and hundreds of miles from the actual Cape Horn. By the end of January, Magellan had given up hope. So on February the 3rd, 1520, the fleet began to move south once more. In order to make sure they did not miss the strait, Magellan ordered that the fleet only sail during the daylight hours, dropping anchor each night. He also sailed as close as he could to the coast, making sure to keep a lookout at all times for any sign of a water passage. Unbeknownst to him, they had now passed 40 degrees latitude and were now sailing past what is today Argentina, but still miles upon miles from their target. He also did not know they were sailing into extremely dangerous waters. On February the 13th, a massive squall blew up and tossed the ships violently. The sailors were terrified, but the ships continued and the fleet passed through safely. Each passing day, Magellan grew more and more concerned they might pass the strait without realizing it. On February the 23rd, they came upon the San Matias Gulf, located in Argentina, around 450 miles south of Buenos Aires, but still about 800-ish miles from the Cape and passage around South America. Here the water deepened, and Magellan was convinced this was the strait. But more sounding and a brief exploration revealed it was not the case. So Magellan would continue south, convinced he was right, convinced there was a way. He had better be right.
is very life dependent on it.